You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Felix, my friend, great to see you. My pleasure, and thank you for having me, Raul. It's a really complicated world out there. So I wanted to pick your brains on what the hell you think is going on, where we are in this whole phase, because we seem to have restarted an economic cycle straight into a bubble, which is something unusual for us. And so I want to see what you think this is. Is this a bubble? What's really going on? How are you thinking about it? So what are your top level thoughts on this? Well, we have certain signs of a bubble. Um, the uh, excesses in speculation, etc. That is late cycle material. Uh, but at the same time, we have the economy that is slowly coming out of a recession and still pretty depressed. So that's certainly not late cycle. So it's a mixed bag. You have certain industries that are in a deep recession, depression, like travel and restaurants and event uh, industry, uh, while at the same time you have uh, semiconductors um, running um, very hot uh, with all sorts of shortages, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's a very mixed bag. Uh, I think this comes, what, what we are witnessing is really a structural shift in how policymakers are guiding or setting the framework for our system. You know, I've been a deflationist or disinflationist um, for most of my life. And, uh, and I always thought the end game would be a deflationary problem of some sort. And, uh, and if you had free markets, that would be the most likely outcome. But I think over the years, our policymakers have moved away from free markets. When you think about our system, our system is built on growth. So the system itself needs economic growth to function. And we have structural factors like uh, demographics that is very bad. You know, demographics, population growth is the best in the U.S., with half a percent growth and the trend is declining. In Europe, it's 0.2% growth, trend is declining. Japan is below zero, China is at zero, and the trend is declining everywhere. The labor force is actually shrinking. And when you look at the demographic setup over the next 10 to 15 years, the trend is accelerating downwards. And as it accelerates downwards, it means that you have less and less population growth. And economic growth is population growth plus productivity growth. And productivity is another problem because we create ever more zombie companies. And zombie companies reduce productivity, uh, productivity growth. Uh, the U.S., uh, the latest statistic I have seen, has about 17% uh, of the companies are zombie companies. 
Europe is at 20% already. So we won't have the economic growth that we need. Over the last 10 years, central banks tried to create the growth by pushing money, creating more and more money, cutting interest rates to zero or even below, and it didn't work. And I think now the next thing is wherever you go uh, and, and talk to government officials, the slogan is the great reset or build back better or whatever that means. I think it's the conclusion that the government has to spend more money because the private sector doesn't do it and, and to create growth. So I think we are seeing a shift from a free market economy to a planning economy. And instead of having a free market resolution to the deflationary side, we get a changing shift in how the economy works. We are moving away from a free market economy to a planning economy where the government share keeps growing. The government share in the US uh, before this pandemic crisis, the lockdown, was about 22%. Uh, it is now in the upper 30%. In the EU, the average is 59%. So more than half is government. Uh, France is at 64. Uh, Germany, the best, is at 54. Uh, so we are moving into more a government type of planning economy. And the bear market and the deflationary collapse you see in freedom. You know, the individual freedom and corporate freedom will be in an ongoing structural bear market. And, and that's how they try to save the system. And I think this is what I didn't understand for a long time, that instead of letting the free markets run uh, into the deflationary um, washout, uh, they shift the system, they change the system to prevent that. And of course, this means that we will have more government involvement. We will have uh, less efficient uh, economies. Uh, we will have um, lesser growth. We will have more regulation. We will have more inflation of some sort uh, due to not well-functioning markets, free markets anymore, and things like that. So we are moving towards what Eastern Europe had for so long. And, and most of the people alive today in the Western world never experienced that. The Cubans know what that is. The old people in Eastern Europe know what that is, but others do not know what that is. So I, I, I as a young guy, I traveled to those places and I saw the queues in front of shops, uh, you know, a, a shoe store, uh, they had um, uh, two models and three sizes for each men and women. And the people were standing up in, in queuing up just to get a pair of shoe. And, and if they couldn't use them, they traded them barter for something else and, and things like that. And you had shortages because it was a planning economy. And, uh, and that's my biggest fear that our children and grandchildren will end up living in a planning economy. Uh, and uh, I think the guys who really didn't see that coming were the guys who initiated that, and those were the central bankers. The central bankers tried to steer the business cycle 
and smooth it. And by doing that, they structurally weakened our system, pushed it ever deeper into debt, et cetera, et cetera. And here we are, and we cannot let the business cycle work itself out. And therefore, we have uh, this sort of uh, planning economy situation we are just about to enter. And, uh, and they are using this pandemic. You know, the politicians, of course, love it because they will get more important. They will have more decision power, etc. A deflationary outcome is a no-go for any politician who needs to be elected. That's, that's uh, clear. In a, in a uh, crony capitalist type of uh, economy or planning economy, you can hand out gifts to this and that group and therefore makes you an important person. And this is what I see is in the early stages of developing. That doesn't mean that equities uh, should be bad investments. They should not necessarily. They can be very good investments because we will have plant plenty of liquidity, probably more than plenty of liquidity around. Uh, they will provide whatever extra liquidity is needed to keep um, the system going. And they need uh, high asset prices to keep the system going. If, uh, you know, the world economy today, GDP is about $90 uh, trillion in size, and risk assets are about $500 trillion in size. So basically, if risk assets decline by 10%, that chops off about roughly 1% of GDP growth. So therefore, they are afraid of letting the market to run down into a full-flown bear market, and therefore they are intervening. And, and that's the world we are seeing uh, structurally. That's the structural change, I believe. So do you think there's another outcome, which is, the, the other parallel I've been looking at is the kind of 1940s and 30s with the New Deal. And it actually, it didn't generate long-lasting inflation. Um, and it actually set off an economic boom. Is it possible that the governments allocate capital in this massive fiscal giveaway in ways that are potentially productive? Or you think it's going to be not productive? Well, I would, I would say my guess would be that probably half will be productive and half will be unproductive and has to be written off over time. Uh, I see what you, what you are saying about the 1940s and then entering the 1950s. The difference to that period is that we have uh, a very different demographic setup. You had the baby booms there and the baby booms uh, created the population growth on which our economies could thrive and grow. Uh, this is just about the opposite, what, what we are seeing right now. So that's why I, um, I doubt that's, uh, that's a repeat or a similarity to the 1950s. I see that we had high uh, government debt uh, after the war, et cetera, et cetera, and we had easy money for a while to help overcome the problems. And then it, uh, the governments brought down the debt levels because of inflation. They inflated, which worked out very well. You know, our governments and central banks have tried to inflate for, what, 20 years? 
<laughs> and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. I, I mean, there are some shifts uh, that could bring on inflation in the short run. Um, on a structural basis, I don't think we, we have a major shift yet uh, because of demographics and, um, and the, the high debt situation also in the private sector. That means the private sector cannot go beyond a certain limit of the debt they take on. Uh, because they need to borrow from somebody and that somebody needs to check their balance sheets. You have technology that is um, very disrupting and very deflationary, uh, of course. Uh, you do not, you have a, a, the, the movie of the globalization running backwards and you move more to regionalization and that will bring on some inflation. Uh, the supply chains will be not the more efficient ones, but the ones that are the safest, which are in your region, and that makes it more expensive. Uh, we have in the short uh, period, we have uh, disruptions in shipping. We have shortages of uh, shipping capacity. We have disruptions in some supply chains. Uh, we have some disruptions and destruction of supply capacity in some industries. So in the short run, I think we have a setup for a rise in inflation. And, uh, and we have a change in the behavior of the Chinese companies. The Chinese companies, like the Japanese companies in the old days, they didn't care about profitability. They cared about market share and conquering the world. And, uh, and that's what the Chinese companies did. Now, I think the, Jap the Chinese companies uh, have so weak balance sheets that they need to restore their balance sheets and they need profits. And as they need better profits, I think they are going to raise prices and, and, and combined with a declining dollar and rising Asian currencies, you get a swing from constant and chronic import deflation to import inflation. And this gives a swing effect that could carry CPI inflation to 3% this year at some point. I don't know whether that will stick or not. That could only stick if the governments came out very quickly and very soon with infrastructure projects, uh, with uh, uh, all sorts of uh, in infrastructure and investment type of programs to really create the demand out there. So far, they are just talking. They have concluded, I mean, there is a European recovery fund and the biggest effect it had so far was a collapse of the Italian government because they are fighting how to spend those 200 billion they get from the EU. <laughs> so, uh, it, they do not even know yet how to spend the money. And I think the same is with Biden. The Biden administration wants to move in that direction, but there are no concrete plans yet. We need to see them. And if we don't see them for the next 12 months and we don't get them for the next 12 months, it won't do much good for the economy. One of the things that I've thought about, and I'm sure you're probably in the same camp as me because we have very similar kind of macro frameworks, is... In a very highly indebted economy with low productivity, if inflation picks up, it actually acts like a tightening on people. 
And so I find that these inflationary impulses tend to lead to deflationary waves. So one of the reasons we see bond yields keep falling over time. So let's say you're right and inflation picks up to 3% over the course of this year. It probably doesn't increase demand. It's not demand-led inflation. So in fact, it probably reduces demand. What do you think? Yeah, they could very well be. I think the consensus scenario right now is that uh, with the vaccination in place, uh, the economy will normalize and you have a bounce back uh, uh, of the economy, uh, 4% growth or whatever the number is, above trend growth for a few quarters. That's the consensus view. Uh, However, if um, the vaccination doesn't work, as expected, and the infection fears stay high, and due to the mutation of the virus, et cetera, et cetera, it may very well be that there is a caveat emptor, and that the economy does not recover, and that the bond yield does not jump up, and that uh, all what they have been talking about and doing about to get the economy moving does not work. Then we have deflationary problems and the deflationary risk. And then I think this would just move forward very quickly, infrastructure projects by the government. Yeah, I kind of feel, past me feels that for them to get these things across the line, these big fiscal stimuluses, they actually need another bout of weak economic growth. That, that could very well be. Uh, so the risk is that there could be a window of deflationary risks and they drop in the stock market uh, uh, f- for a while, particularly by cyclicals, uh, not by growth stocks, because bond yields would not go up, they would stay low. Uh, but I think if that would be the case, I would expect the governments to panic and come up with infrastructure projects very quickly. You know, our governments all panicked in a way. The only government that didn't was the Chinese government. They kept calm and quiet. They handled the the virus situation relatively well, aside from not letting letting the world know that something strange was going on. Uh, But they handled it very well. Uh, They recovered. Uh, They didn't go into a major fiscal push. Uh, They actually even tightened monetary policy. They hiked interest rates. It's the only place in the world a major market where you have positive real returns in the fixed income area. Uh, So they've stayed calm. They didn't panic. Our governments all panicked, and they are still, many are still in panicky mood, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, because we noticed that split between the Asian economies and the um, Western economies, Well, the Asian economies, just because a more compliant society, they were able to get rid of the virus quicker, just in just how society acted. And they didn't rack up debts. I mean, it's pretty true of South Korea, Taiwan, all of these countries. The West, on the other hand, as you said, I mean, this is unprecedented outside of World War II now. This is the largest budget deficit all of these nations have run. So A, it feels like there's a competitive advantage to Asia coming. We'll come into that in a bit. But I want to think about this debt load now, right? We've got these bloated central bank balance sheets that can never be reduced. And now we've got massive fiscal deficits and we're about to spend more. How does this play out 
it's kind of unprecedented for all of us to to look at this and think, okay, what happens? Well, most of the increase in government debt uh, ended up on the balance sheets of the central banks. And central banks, as you know, cannot go bust. Uh, That's the first point. They cannot go bust. And uh, when interest rates and bond yields are as low as they are, you can at some point uh, switch all your bonds you hold on your balance sheet and uh, go and change that into a perpetual. Yeah. The perpetual has a 1% coupon or a zero coupon, it uh, doesn't matter much. So then you save the system and you save the, the balance sheet of uh, the central bank. And then you can just build on that again, the next tower on the, of debt, you know, in, in the economy. So the box is pretty deep where there are all sorts of new gig, tricks and gimmicks they can come up with. So they, they want to keep the game going and, and I don't blame them. Of course they want to. They, they feared cleaning the situation over the last 30 years. And, and, and because of that, we have ended up in a situation where we cannot do it anymore. We cannot clean the system and clear the system anymore. All we can do is freeze what we got with the perpetual, for instance, and then go from there and behave as it wouldn't be there because it doesn't bother you due to low interest rates. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So you kind of issue a massive, you know, X trillion dollar perpetual bond at 1%, and yeah. then try and run the economy slightly hotter than that. And over time, it diminishes the debt. Yes, and you repeat that a few times, so that in ten years' time, the Fed balance sheet is instead of seven trillion is forty or fifty, or whatever. So obviously, there is a payback. Nothing comes free. And what is that? That's the devaluation of fiat currency overall. What What's your view on the payback for this? Yes. Well, the payback is that you lose more and more. Prosperity goes downhill in such an in, in, environment, and you lose uh, an ever-increasing number of your people to the government, that they have to rely and be supported by the government. So they become victims and prisoners of the government's policies, and the government has to take care of them. So this is you know, the slow move back to the communist system, in a way. And, and I, see, I, see, I think that is the big backdrop. Our prosperity for the broad mass of people goes down and our freedom goes down and those are the structural bear markets. Um, on that topic, there's two other areas. Um, one is coming hand in hand with that is gonna be regulation. Whether it's regulation of monopolistic enterprises in technology, uh, regulation of oil businesses and polluting industries, I mean, there's a lot of regulation to come in all of this. Absolutely. It's a, it's a bull market in regulation. Absolutely. Trump was just a correction in the trend. 
<laughs> yeah, that's yes. right. And it, yes. And it feels like that is going to reduce some of the supernormal profits that many of these businesses have made because governments are going to come after that, right? Yes, but, uh, you know, until they attack, um, uh, let's say, uh, the social media or things like that, it will take a while because the politicians uh, need somebody to support them. And they have bought the media, you know, Germany hands out 250 million to the media, to the print medias every year. And Merkel basically bought the media. So the mainstream media has become a loudspeaker for the government's policies, basically. Uh, social media always said, we are free. You can say what you want. That's over. As we, as we know that during the US election, that changed uh, dramatically and that's over. But I think they will not, the, the politicians will not immediately go after them. That will come someday but I think that is probably a few years down the road. And the other pillar of all of this in government trying to get out of this mess is obviously a rise in taxes. Yes, of course. Yes, of course. Uh, you know, you, we, Switzerland, uh, we are one of the few countries with a wealth tax. So whatever you own worldwide is taxed. Uh, and and it depends on the canton where you live, how much it is. It varies between about half a percent to 0.2 percent, but uh, but it's very unpleasant in an environment of very low or negative interest rates, because then it really turns into confiscation. You know, we have in Switzerland we have our 10-year bond, the uh, uh, government bond yields uh, a negative 45 basis points or something like that, and then if you live in Zurich, you have 0.4 percent wealth tax. So you cannot make it on your income, on your capital income. Uh, you lose money. That's confiscation, basically. And then on top, you get the wealth tax. And this, when you add it all up, moves your income tax rate, if you include it, to very high levels. And that's the situation you end up with. Uh, it's only attractive if you are a huge cash flow rich uh, entity. If you are a, um, a, a guy who makes a uh, hundred million every year and you have, and you have only uh, 500 or 400 million wealth, then it's fine. You know, then you have low taxes uh, and then it doesn't matter. But for retirees, it's murder. It's absolutely murder because it forces you to move out of the negative uh, fixed income investments, which are less volatile, into more volatile investments. And your lifespan that is left is five, 10, 15, or 20 years. So you have a relatively short lifespan. If you come into the market at the wrong time, you know, it's, it's murder. It's murder. Yeah, I've been really worried about this because, as you said, it's pushing retirees out the risk curve. Absolutely. And they should be the opposite. So let's say an event does happen that the market stays down 30, 40% for a year or two. I mean, that's going to destroy everybody's pensions. I mean, absolutely. One of the reasons you said that the, the, the governments can't allow the market even to go down anymore. 
Yes, uh, you know, and and pensions right now they are. I don't know the percentage, but I would say there is a very high number of pension funds that are actually underwater, that uh, that are not earning, that are that do not have the income to pay for their liabilities. So they are running down their assets in a way at the cost of the younger people. They are paying out to the older, to the uh, pension, to the retired people at the cost of reducing the assets for the contributing younger people. So this is, uh, this is a very unpleasant chapter. And I think at some point of time, uh, the governments have to address that because otherwise uh, you have social riots. And then th this means more government involvement. It's just more taxes and more government involvement. You know, basically, if I'm right with the structural shift, the way I described it, it means that at some point of time, you come to a tipping point where the people begin to revolt against the governments. It's like uh, the French Revolution in the, uh, in the uh, 18th century. You, you know, you have something like that. And, uh, and I, you, you, that was a very unpleasant affair for the top 1% of the population. They chopped the head off of all of them. But the reality is, is lives for the kind of average working class person are pretty miserable. So I think that initially it's going to perceive to be good because there becomes a safety net. But as you said, the trade-off is freedom and also probably lower productivity. So it becomes a trap. It looks like a great benefit at first. Yeah. Oh, here's free money. Here's a bunch of things, welfare state. And those are good. But in the end, it becomes the trap. And at the end, you know, you will have higher inflation. So all these guys will be trapped because they think they are well off and a few years down the road, they realize this is not true. So uh, I, I think we are going down a very dangerous path in, uh, in economic policies that I see uh, in the Western world particularly. I think the Asian world is managing better. They are probably one generation uh, behind us with those problems. They will run into the same problem down the road because at the end of this century, the Chinese population will only be about half of what it is right now. Most people do not know that, but, uh, <laughs> but, but that will create huge problems for China down the road. They will run into the same problems down the road, but not uh, for the next uh, couple of years. So let's flip to markets now. Well, I'm looking at this, seeing all-time record retail speculation, all-time kind of long positions, all-time short bond, record short bonds, all-time record short dollar, mutual funds with the lowest cash in history, you know, it's kind of marker after marker to say the market's very one-sided. And it makes me nervous. What, what's your read on, on the kind of, let's talk about the equity market to start with. What's your read on that? Well, obviously, the consensus is that uh, the good news, because the economy will recover, the good news will come. And therefore, the risk is very low because earnings will go up. And there is plenty of liquidity around. And if there isn't, they will provide more. You know, so therefore we are safe. That's the consensus view. I uh, just uh, wrote in a publication to my subscribers that there are analogies, a similarity to the 1987 situation. 
I've been looking at that. In 1987, we had one of the biggest declines in a few weeks in the history of uh, the US stock market or most stock markets around the world. We didn't have a recession and we didn't have central bank tightening. It happened without central bank tightening and it happened without, without a recession. So what happened then? What happened was we had a strong dollar into 85 because uh, President Reagan's uh, uh, fiscal push and Paul Walker's stability-oriented monetary policy. And then the dollar peaked in 85 and a few months later, there was the Plaza Accord where the G5 at that time came together and said, the dollar is too high, we need a lower dollar. So um, uh, the US central bank began to ease and all the other central banks uh, started to sell dollars and the dollar started a big decline. And then in August of 1987, Greenspan took over from Paul Walker. And he of course was an easy money guy and the market knew that, that he was an easy money guy. And so every day the dollar went lower and every day bond yields went up. Bond yields had declined from 14% to 7% at the end of 86, from 84 to 86. And then from beginning of 87, 10-year treasury yield rose from 7 to 10% into the crash. This was just a rebound of half retracement of what it lost before. We had inflation rising from 1.5% to 4.5% due to a sharply falling dollar and import uh, inflation uh, rising and pushing uh, the inflation rates up. And, and at some point of time, the models at that time said, well, if bond yields go to that level, we have to sell. And then there was portfolio insurance. And when the stock market was very overheated, everybody was long. And when the stock market started a short-term correction, the portfolio insurance guys kicked in and started to sell. And the rest is history. And you know the similarity today is we have a declining US dollar. Uh, we have easy money. The US doesn't care whether the dollar goes further down or not. Um, we have easy money out of the U.S. Even the Treasury is, uh, is uh, compounding it by reducing its uh, general account at the Fed and injecting over the next six months $1.1 trillion into the system, which is huge on top of what the, what, what the Fed does. So you have very excessive money creation and liquidity creation in the US banking system. You have a declining dollar and you have a rising yield in the bond market. So it wouldn't surprise me. I do not know at what level, but it wouldn't surprise me if 10-year bond yields at some point this year uh, reach 2%. That's about my target zone, about 2%. At some point on the way to 2%, it could very well be that certain models say, well, we have to cut back in risk, in equity risk, and they start selling. And then the robots, the machines, the algorithms come on and start selling. And all of a sudden, you have a very nasty decline, 
without the recession, without central bank tightening, et cetera, et cetera. It comes out of capital flow. You know, a declining currency is reflective of capital outflow of a system. And if a system loses capital as it flows out, it tightens the situation. And people, most people do not understand that because they look at monetary aggregates and things like that. And there is no tightening visible, of course. But this is how it could play out in the second half of this year, in my view. And this would particularly be the case if, let's say, bond yield stayed soft here into early summer and, uh, and the growth stocks uh, did accelerate on the upside and we had a buying panic. Uh, and then all of a sudden, inflation rate picked up and the bond yields picked up and you had a sharp move towards 2%. And then you had the cocktail for a nasty decline. And then it would be a washout. And if you have a washout, you know what policymakers do. The same thing they always do, you know? So the game begins anew. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm looking at this and thinking, uh, I mean, I hadn't really thought so much of the second half. I've been thinking over the, the first half that there is a risk that you talked about early on that maybe the virus situation doesn't clear up as much. Maybe the mutations mean it accelerates, whatever it may be, or maybe bond yields spike because, as we know, the year-on-year comparisons of inflation are going to look strong for a few, few quarters now coming up. That may, yeah, I feel like there's a pocket, an air pocket there. And I've been looking a little bit at the at 1987 as well, thinking feels a bit like that. Yeah, I, I see that right now. My cyclical trend and momentum indicators are still fine. They are in good shape. The medium term um, tools are, uh, are warning. They are warning. And we could have, um, I think we could have a multi-week correction very soon. Uh, it could happen uh, from late February on. It could happen through March, uh, April. I do not know. But I think we are moving towards that. If that correction is shallow or less than 10%, then I think we have another attempt higher into the summer. And when I, you know, I, I look at cycles also, as you do. I, I know you do. About every seven years or so, uh, there is a high in the stock market, uh, uh, 1973, 1980, 87, 94, 2000, 2007, 2015, and 21, 22 would be the next one. And then when you look at the four-year cycle where you have the lows, 2008, 2012, 2016, 2020, and 2024 would be the next ideal low. So 23, 24 would be the point for a low and 21, 22, the point for a high. So we are moving into the time window. I, and I looked at seasonal cycles, et cetera. So I think that sometimes between, let's say late summer of this year, and spring of next year, that would be the ideal high for the cycle. So then we are into uh, high-risk territory, so to speak, for equity investments. I mean, that's on nobody's radar screen except people like John Hussman and others who are look, 
you know, uh, Gr uh, Grantham Mayo, who are looking at the forward expected returns of equities, and they're saying developed market equities are like between negative five and negative 10% over the next 10 years. Yeah. Um, but nobody else is thinking this right now. Everyone's like, you know, everything returns back to normal and everything just keeps going higher. Yeah, that's why, because, uh, you know, Wall Street and the investment community doesn't think in cycles. They think no. in linearity. Linear. And, uh, and, and the, the life, the world, everything in the world goes in cycles. And, uh, and, and I believe in cyclical recurrences. It's not mechanical, but there is a, rec a cyclical recurrence. Let's look at asset allocation in this kind of tricky environment. How are you thinking about it kind of in the shorter term, the next you know, three to six months? And how are you looking at bigger opportunities uh, across the board? Where's your head at with asset allocation? A stock market cycle that started in March of 2020 uh, usually has at least three medium-term uplegs, sometimes more. We are near the end or about ending the second uplegs, in my view, in my work. So I think we will have a correction and then a third uplegs. And then I'm checking out trend, uh, trend and momentum how the health situation of the stock market is. If trend and momentum is powerful and useful and vigorous, there is not much that will happen on the risk side to the market. However, if it's weakening, if it's aging, if it's non-confirming uh, uh, new highs, et cetera, et cetera, then the risk is growing higher. And, and I think we are moving into a cycle top uh, from uh, late summer onwards. And therefore, you can still play, but you have to be aware that it's in the late cycle. And when you compare the cycle from 2020 to the secular cycle from the 2009 low, then you see that in the whole period from 2009 to 2020 low, the retail investor was absent. And from 22 onwards, all of a sudden, the retail investor is here. And it's here in a powerful and highly speculative way. And the retail investor is going gangbusters and the pros are invested long as never before uh, in the last 20 years and things like that. So risk is very high and return is probably relatively low. That doesn't mean that you cannot make some money over the next uh, six to nine months or six to eight months. But I think over 12 months, you could get disappointed that at the end of this year, all of a sudden you look back and you said, oh, I didn't see that, you know? What about um, other markets? What about the dollar? Because obviously that's important. It's sold off a lot. It's pretty oversold. Do you think it kind of bounces for a while before we get some clarity? What's your view on that? Uh, the dollar, uh, uh, you know, the dollar is a fiat currency since 1971, since, it, since the U.S. went off the gold standard. And since then, we have had three bear cycles and three bull cycles within a secular downtrend. And the bear cycles uh, have on average lasted about seven years. And uh, you can make the case that uh, it topped in 2020 or it topped in 2017 because we have a double top. And uh, whatever it means is that we have at least 
three to four more years to go on the downside with the US dollar. And I would say that the US dollar index probably can hit uh, uh, 70 or so at the end of this decline. And keep in mind that I think the Asian currencies will be stronger than the European currency, which is heavily weighted in the US dollar index, the European currencies. So the Asian currencies will do much better than that. In the short term, I see that we are in the later stages of this decline from March. And the best part of the decline is behind us. I think from here, it will be very erratic. Uh, my cycle work suggests uh, uh, the low, the most important low to near mid-year of this year. So I think from here to there, we will make minor new lows, but it will be more erratic, like fours and fives and things like that. You know, very complex trading. You should not take too many large positions. Everybody out there with short positions, they will uh, sweat uh, through that. And then all of a sudden, when the stock market gets hit in, this, in, in late summer or so, then it's risk off. And then the dollar carries uh, goes higher, and not because the fundamentals would be stronger, because I think then it's risk off, and all the people with risk on have to reduce positions. They have to reduce their long positions in commodities, in equities, and their short positions in bonds and the dollar. And it all moves at the same time. So I think the second half is, uh, is uh, developing into a very attractive uh, situation for macro traders. Very attractive. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. How are you thinking through emerging markets? They're on my radar screen. I think, you know, if we're in a weaker dollar environment, or even if the dollar's stable in a range, I kind of think that emerging markets are going to be the next kind of 10 years of growth. I don't know. I can't get comfortable with an entry point because of what you're talking about. Somewhere within all of this is a bunch of risk. What are you thinking about emerging markets? Yeah, the, the way I see it is emerging markets usually move counter to the dollar and they move in sync with uh, outperform when uh, commodities outperform. Uh, and I think that uh, as long as we have a dollar bear market, let's say for the next four years or so, we have an outperformance by emerging markets and, uh, and, and an outperformance and very bullish performance by commodities. So I'm waiting for a big shakeout or a nasty decline sometimes uh, in the second half into next year uh, for a good entry point. I would not enter now because you have a little bit left on the upside, but the good emerging markets are those that are performing so well are growth tilted like Korea or Taiwan. And it's only a few stocks because when you really look into emerging markets in a broad spectrum, the emerging markets, economically speaking, are not doing well. You know, they have been hurt more by the pandemic than the developed markets. And I think they will have difficulties to come out because they are 
very often the, the corporations are burdened with much more debt than ours. And therefore, I would think that they have a difficulty to come out of it. They will come out of it, but not necessarily strongly. That does not mean that their stock markets could not do well. You know, if, uh, if you have decent uh, uh, growth, but not high growth, but decent growth, and you have plenty of liquidity, and you have a situation where uh, a country has uh, running a chronic um, external account surpluses, you have sort of a vicious circle, like the Asian economies. When they have strong currencies, strong currencies puts you into a vicious, uh, into a virtuous uh, circle, whereas weak currencies put you into a vicious circle. So, so I would avoid the weak currency countries then for investment, uh, except for a few companies that are star performers. But uh, on a broad basis, I would go for those with a strong currency that are in a virtuous uh, uh, circle and have capital inflow. And, you know, capital flows are changing. Um, last year, for the first time, foreign investment has been lower in the U.S. than in China for the first time. And this is just another sign that the flows are changing, that the future will be in Asia and not in the Western world. And, uh, and I, would, I would look at uh, markets like India, uh, of course, as a very developing market story. Um, uh, but Taiwan is, is, is a great story due to technology, but Taiwan is uh, politically very exposed. You know, I'm a little bit afraid of them because Taiwan is the technology leader now in semiconductors. Taiwan Semiconductors is the leader. They just recently announced they can uh, come out uh, and print um, uh, seven nanometer chips and in two years' time, three nanometer chips. Intel cannot do any of those. And, and so the leadership in, in chips has gone to the east, to Taiwan. China has no semiconductor industry. So China looks at Taiwan as a renegade province and they want to bring it home. And that would make it best for them to get that semiconductor industry, you know, that is ahead of the US. And therefore, Biden is, in my view, a president that is in line with other presidents that have been weak on foreign policy, like Obama or Jimmy Carter. And, uh, and therefore, the next four years is probably an option for China to intervene and bring Taiwan home, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, that's a big risk. That would be a big market event, right, if that were to happen. Yeah, and you don't see it in monetary policy. You know, everybody's focused on, on liquidity and monetary policy. And I think the driving forces will come from different sides. Capital flows is one, and that's the currency. And politics is another one. So I'm guessing you think of the commodity cycle roughly in the same way as the emerging market cycle. You're interested. You think it's going to run over time, but it's probably a bit overextended in the short term. What, what, what are you thinking? Most of the commodities, uh, and I follow uh, all of them, most of them are uh, near the end of the second up leg uh, in, in, my view, in my model. 
and uh, they might have a third up leg, uh, an interim correction, and then a third up leg, but it's relatively late in the first mini cycle of a new secular up cycle in commodities. That's how I see it. Yeah, makes sense to me. And if if you say the dollar goes up again, commodities come off for a bit, they kind of yeah. test their breakouts, that kind of stuff, do a bit of consolidation. That makes sense. What about gold and Bitcoin, the two other kind of anti-central bank plays? How are you thinking through both of those? If you told 20 years ago, if you told a gold bug that um, we would have the sharpest decline in the economy, we would have the biggest increase in a few weeks' time of the central bank balance sheet, the money printing, we would have a fiscal deficit running in the double digits, et cetera, et cetera. He would have jumped up and down and say, this is great, this is bullish for gold. It wasn't. And this is the biggest disappointment for all the gold bucks. You had all the news you usually have to make a bull market in gold, and it didn't work. And uh, in my model, I got the cyclical sell signal last August, and I told my subscribers, I want them, you know, for the next 12 months, uh, you, you won't see much by gold. It's in a cyclical correction, most likely within a secular uptrend. And we had a huge run to that uh, August high. Uh, it was from 1,200 or from almost uh, above uh, 1,000 to over 2,000 was a double. And, and it needs to correct. And I think gold is still in a correction and it probably hasn't hit the low of that correction yet. So I, I think gold is dead money for this year, but it's going to build a platform for a great next year. So I, I love gold because what I was talking about at the beginning, the change of the system, et cetera, in the long run will be inflationary and it will push central banks to increase their balance sheets more and more and more and to debase currencies more and more and more. And this eventually will get reflected in a higher gold price. Uh, so I, I'm buying uh, uh, gold mining companies that I like fundamentally on each sell-off during this year because they, to me, are a long-term option on the gold price. Uh, not just the gold they produce and sell, but also the gold they own in the ground. You know, at the end of a great bull run, they usually value the gold in the ground <laughs> to justify the highs. So that, that's what I'm doing. And that's my view on gold. I think silver will probably outperform uh, gold um, uh, for, this, for this year. Bitcoin for a guy my age is, um, is challenging. <laughs> I always thought that... Uh, the authorities will declare Bitcoin and other cryptos as illegal for payments. Uh, I think they have missed that point uh, because it's too big now, because if they would do it, it goes to zero right away. Uh, so they cannot do it. It would create too much havoc probably. So I think it's understandable that it is a rare asset uh, you know that it is rare, there is a limit, and you cannot increase it, although there are 7,000 cryptocurrencies <laughs> uh, around, so, and there will be new ones coming at some point. But 
I think as long as people and millennials are probably, you know, have more affinity to technology, as long as they believe this is a great way to store your savings, it will work. And every mania and every great bull market, and it's probably not over yet on a secular basis, uh, has its bubble item. And I recall, you know, the Chicago Board of Options Exchange, all the regulations are basically the same that the Dutch used in the 17th century. And we had the tulip bubble then, you know, at the peak, a tulip bubble was selling for the price of a townhouse in Amsterdam, which today would probably be a few million bucks. And uh, so Bitcoin could go to such a crazy price level. It could, but you know where, bit, where the tulip bulbs trade today, you know, a dozen for a dollar 90 or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's how I see it. Here's an interesting question. What's your kid's view on it? My son owns it. Uh, there you he, go. Yeah. He, has, he has been in it uh, early. And I should have listened to him. He always said, Dad, put 1% of your assets into Bitcoin and just write it off and forget it. And if I had done it, um, I, <laughs> uh, I would do much better. You know, my performance <laughs> would have been much better, of course. Of course. But um, I'm glad for my son and I'm glad for all the, the guys who make money. I just do not have the full conviction. I see... And, and I see that with rising prices, my conviction is growing, of course. That is Obviously. human nature. Uh, but, but I do not have the full conviction because I do not see the inherent value. Behind the currency, I can see an economy that can create um, surpluses in the current account. And that surplus recycles again and again and again and pushes the value of the currency up. Of course, the central bank leans against it, but there is an inherent value. I understand uh, the Bitcoin, I must admit, I do not fully understand. But I, I, I think it's uh, the technology companies who want their own payment system. They want their own monetary system. And... Uh, and I doubt that someday we will all pay our items with Bitcoin. Um, but I rather think we will pay by digital currencies. The central banks will go to digital currencies, which is the death of the banking industry. Yeah, I'm to I totally agree. And also, I just think that like many of us use gold as our own personal reserve asset, in a digital world, people will use Bitcoin as their personal reserve asset. And we've seen it, you know, Switzerland's already pretty advanced in accepting Bitcoin payment for taxes and stuff like that. They say, fine, you're going to have Bitcoin. We're still going to tax you, um, but we'll accept it into the system, but not as the main method of payment. Governments are always going to own that. You know, I live in Zug and Zug is where the Crypto Valley is. It's called Crypto Valley. So, uh here is uh, uh, a center of cryptocurrency experts and cryptocurrency companies. And uh, I recall I talked to a guy who is uh, a leading lawyer in the field many, many years ago. And I always told him, 
look, they will declare it illegal at some point of time. And he just put his a little bit of his money here and there, etc. And he, he's doing very well. <laughs> <laughs> so just to sum up, it's been fascinating. It's given us a really good framework. What do you think people should be doing now? Because you've identified that this is not clear. Your view is we've probably got some correction to come, you know, whatever size that is, 10%, 15%, whatever it is. We then probably build a larger top that goes into the summer. What, what should people do? Just continue holding some risk but reduce it a bit? Or what, what is the trade to do? Well, I think it depends on on everybody's uh, personality and mandate. Uh, and and what I would do is I would uh, I would circle the assets that I would like to hold for longer term because I really have a fundamental conviction. And the the rest I would sing aloud for reduction of risk in my portfolios. And then I would uh, define what my risk tools are to hedge against the decline. And I would put that framework ready, in a ready state, that I could pull the trigger and push the button when the uh, tools say, now it's time to reduce risk. And, uh, and that goes for equities as well as for commodities. Um, in, in the currencies, as I said, as an American investor, I would look for uh, Asian Asian currencies and Asian assets. Uh, the same goes for the Europeans. Uh, the euro will do uh, somewhat better than than the dollar, but it's a uh, it's a misconstructed currency. It won't break apart. The, the political will is too is too high. Uh, the integration will deepen, which is very bad for the economy. Very bearish news because it weakens uh, the European continent structurally. Uh, so. Yes, be prepared for, I think, the second half uh, to, um, uh, to put on uh, your risk management tools. Uh, it's too early to sell out now. Uh, for a short-term trader, it's probably right to sell a little bit here. Uh, for the long, for the, those who play the cycle, it's a little bit too early. But uh, most of the move on the upside is behind us. You have to be aware of that. And I think there will be a better time, whether it is late this year or over the next year, uh, that will be, uh, will be offering great entry points again into commodities, emerging market equities, and great companies that you can buy at cheaper prices. Felix, phenomenal. As ever, look, really, really good to pick your brains. Always good to hear your thought process. Uh, I think people are going to find it really insightful. So thanks again, as ever. Thank you very much, Raul, for having me. I hope we can see each other in person uh, sometimes in the future again. Yeah, I'm waiting. Both of us are stuck okay. traveling. <laughs> but we will do something. We will get okay. together soon. Okay, great. All right, Thank you friend. very much. This was fun. Hey there, since you got to the end, I'm guessing you liked the video. And that's probably because we don't just turn on a camera and film, we work really hard on getting the narrative flow just right. And that's why many finance companies are actually now hiring Real Vision to make videos for them. One of our recent client videos just hit 100,000 organic views on YouTube, and there were no kittens in sight. So if you want to find out how Real Vision can make a video for your company, just email us at customvideo at realvision.com.
You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.